Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. We're here in the flesh again and we've had guests in the flesh, which is so nice. Outstanding. And today we have a broker on board, which we just get flooded with so many questions in the Facebook group around lending, around banks. So we're going to unpack plenty of that today. Absolutely. I I thought you were going to say we get... Uh, flooded with brokers trying to get onto our show. Oh, well, we also <laughs> do get that too, but yeah. we only have good ones on our show because yeah, we don't we, want any cowboys on no, the show. No, cow, just cowgirls. Cowgirls. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's do it. Today, we're fortunate to have Evelyn Clark from Everlend, the most coolest business name I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. How long did it take you to come up with that, Evelyn? Uh, well, uh, that's a good question, actually. I think one of my friends came up with it and we were actually at a party at the time. Oh. And as soon as someone said it, the whole crowd just went, that's the name. <laughs> so once we knew it, we had it. <laughs> Getting royalties ever since. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's get into this because I'm keen to know what's happening out there in finance land. Um, a lot of clients and people from the public are saying, oh, I'm getting pre-approval in 24 hours and some are saying three weeks. And we know that there's plenty of variables. There's uh, employee versus self-employed versus uh, low deposit high deposit, cash, equity, all these sort of things. So say it how it is, Evelyn, what's going on? Okay, it's a really, really good question because it's one that you can't blanket answer. There are so many, as you said, variables that go into it. So probably the biggest thing to focus on, first of all, apart from different lenders are always going to have different processes and different service timeframes anyway. But whether or not you're getting pre-approval or you're sort of going, you know, you've purchased and you're going straight into um, formal approval, some of the banks pulled out of pre-approvals being fully assessed regardless because they just found that with with the amount of applications that we're receiving, particularly with property prices going up so much and, and there being such high activity recently, um, they don't have the support or the the you know the manpower to be able to continue to assess those as they do with the full approvals. So they prioritise full fully assessed um, formal approvals, of course. And there's tends to be two queues with a lot of the banks now, where the pre approval may just go through an automatic computer based approval process, which is the approvals that you're getting in 24 hours. Yeah, so okay. that's probably one of the ones to. If, if someone's getting a 24-hour pre-approval, I highly doubt it's fully assessed. Yeah, and, and that was my concern. And, and there's articles banding around saying there's um, online companies giving pre-approvals in 24, but it, it's it's purely just an assessment of their income and that's it, right? Yeah. Like it's nothing. Well, it, it goes through a computer algorithm. Yeah. So it's based on the data that's submitted and then it'll run um, – you know, it'll be based on the data in terms of the income, their asset position. So it'll go through like a credit scoring type system. Yep. And then it'll also be based off, it'll run um, the, the client's details as well. So it'll look at 
you know, their driver's license numbers and that sort of thing and do a credit check, but it's not then picked up by a human and looked at. It's purely just based on does it tick these green boxes and if so, there's your approval. Yeah, sure. Okay. So tell us about uh, different lenders out there. Obviously brokers, 15, 20, 25 lenders um, across the board to to then shortlist for the client. But um, do you see much difference or variance between their turnaround times? Have they got – some have got offshore staff which impacts things. Yeah, 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 definitely. So there's some lenders that I would say um, have handled it a lot better than others. (laughs) Not Um, mentioning names. (laughs) uh, We'll go into that in a moment. (laughs) But there are some lenders that I think because their risk appetite is not as – you know, they're looking for the less risky client, really. They're looking for the professional. Um, they're looking for someone with a low LVR or a higher deposit. They're looking for someone in potentially a PAYG capacity that's not self-employed. So they're really sort of bringing down anything that could go wrong or be more risky to them from a, a lending perspective. Those ones tend to have the fastest time frames, um, regardless of where we're at in terms of how busy um, the property market tends to be. So can I name names? <laughs> Go for it. Go for Those it. are generally your Macquarie's and your ING's of the world. Yeah. Um, who, yeah, they, they have a particular type of client and when they get that client, it's a fast turnaround time. It's all, it's very um, like technology based with those types of assessments as well. Yeah. Um, and they can usually shoot out a, an assessment within a week type thing. Yeah. But then you've got your majors who tend to have higher volumes when things do pick up as well, which is the nature of the beast because they do have Uh, you know, they do fund the most in terms of um, home loan lending anyway. Um, And those ones we tend to see, that's where the discrepancy comes in, in terms of assessment timeframes, because when they get busier or when they do something like put out a cashback offer Mm. and try and entice a whole heap of, you know, revenue for themselves, new leads, leads, new clients, their assessment timeframes just go right out the wall. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that you can, you can sort of see it coming when they do put out offers like that, but it's not until all of a sudden the applications are in the process and their cert- turnaround times change from being maybe 14 days to 25 days in a number of days <laughs> that you're caught in this period of time where you just have to wait it out. Sure. Um, and then again, if you're looking at more of a complex self-employed customer, potentially a guarantor loan, anything that's not your standard 80% PAYG, they're going to potentially be in a more complex queue or be allocated an assessor that specialises in that area, which they will have less of in the bank and therefore longer service timeframes as well. Yeah, awesome. So just last, lastly on the whole what's happening on the, on the ground at the moment, what about um, if I've only got a 10% deposit versus a 20%? Because um, we know just for listeners that if we go uh, lower than 20% that we're going to cop some lenders mortgage insurance unless we're a medical professional or AFL superstar or something like that. So <laughs> tell us, uh, is there a time difference um, and the more checks and balances? Obviously, there's LMI insurers that need to play in uh, play a part in that role. What's, uh, what's the difference there? Yeah, probably two differences I would say. Number one is more supporting documents are required. So there's some banks that will basically have a policy for under 80% and over 80% and they're things like they will need to uh, verify your genuine savings and and things like that. Um, They also may ask for additional statements in terms of verifying your living expenses or something that they may not for an under 80% deal. So that may add a little bit in terms of timeframes, but probably the biggest one is depending on the lender, whether or not they do their mortgage insurance in-house or it has to go to an external lender's mortgage insurance provider for approval, it may then be 
approved by the bank or approved by that credit assessor and then it needs to go up to either a higher credit for sign-off or it needs to go out to a lender's mortgage insurance provider, which might be another day turnaround for them to come back and say, yes, we agree with the bank's credit assessment. Right, okay. Because a client said to me only yesterday actually, um, we've got uh, an offer that we're putting in. Uh, We've got a 14-day finance clause to obviously get – she's already got pre-approval – 14-day finance clause to get evaluation done, contracts looked over and um, formal approval given. Yeah. Now, in my world, I think 14 days is sufficient. Mm. However, her mortgage broker has come back to her and said, we need longer than 14 days. And I said, tongue-in-cheek, sack your mortgage broker, <laughs> right? <laughs> John. <laughs> With a smiley face, Emily, right? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Is that just the changing times that we're faced with? Oh. Like is 14 days realistic? My very first question would be who is the lender? because it'll depend on what their process is from pre-approval to formal approval. If it's a fully assessed pre-approval, then it's not going to take 14 days because, as you say, all it's going to need is the valuation and then it's going. uh, they'll need the contract of sale and potentially they'll need an updated payslip or an updated um, bank statement that shows their funds to complete is still there. Mm. That's it. So you would have said the same thing as me then? Yeah, but depending (laughs) on the lender, (laughs) lender, if it was someone that also, if if it was just a system-based pre-approval, Yes. Then they actually haven't even assessed it yet. Yeah. So they might be pre-approved with quotation marks, but um, that means it's still got to go. It starts at the start of the queue. Yeah. It doesn't go through rework, which is usually what happens once it's been pre-approved. It just gets then yeah. edited. Yeah, which it wasn't. So it was a full pre-approval. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But yeah, good one for the listeners to understand. There's pre-approvals and then there's Dicey pre-approvals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spend five minutes getting a check. Oh, yeah, I can borrow this. Away I go. <laughs> Now I've actually got to do the real stuff and, and get a pre-approval that mm. uh, could impact your offer because at the moment in heated markets, as we know, Emily, um, vendors and agents aren't sticking around for 28 days for you to go and get your finance sorted. No, unfortunately not. Um and look, I think it's a pretty standard, like a two-week finance clause is a pretty standard clause. But as Evelyn mentioned, the first question is who is the lender? Because it's not necessarily the broker that's dragging their feet. It's the lender, which is out of their control um, as to how long that, that time frame can take. Mm. So, you know, if you're sort of looking, oh, you know, my friend got it done in five days. Mm. Um, it's taking me forever. It's not necessarily um, a reflection upon the broker. We've put together finance clauses based on a number of reasons in terms of the timeframe being selected. One of them very recently that we did for a client uh, had changed jobs and we needed the first payslip for Mm. them to go formal. So they'd had their employment contract, they'd started the job, but unfortunately they were paid monthly. So that's the 15th of every month. And so we aligned the finance clause to be two days after the date they'd received the payslip. So things like that can definitely, you know, we we did it as, as close as we could to being um, you know, as short as possible, but yeah. still giving us enough time to get that formal once the payslip was come had come through. Yeah, 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 and, and it just continues to sing home the importance of a a sophisticated mortgage broker that mm. knows what they're doing, uh, understanding uh, different banks' policies, understanding the client, understanding the law of the land, understanding the markets that they're buying in, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me about fixed loans. I'm hearing on the street. <laughs> that we can go and get a fixed loan and we can offset as many funds as we want to. 
from certain lenders? With certain lenders, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's got to be, you know, if I just had one answer for every question, it would be, it depends on the lender. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Uh, start with that and then expand. <laughs> Go from there. Um, yeah, there's probably about three or four lenders that do offset fixed rate options. Um, and that really gives you the best of both worlds in terms of totally. if you want something that is offset, but you want the stability or locking in a lower rate now, um, and I say lower rate, but they're probably about the same as the variable, if not more at the moment. Mm. Um, but, you know, the ability to lock it in and, and avoid potential rate rises, but still have the offset. Like you don't get that with many lenders. No. Yeah. And um, are they doing that just for market share? Like there's- They've always had it as a product feature though. Yeah. So right. it's not, not not a new thing. Yeah. Um, I guess it's just one of their niches. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and how is, without naming them, <laughs> how is their, their servicing and their overall- like package is it is it appealing for investors is it owner rock um the ones that we've done with those kind of lenders tend to be either really uh you know strong servicing mm. or potentially a lower loan to value ratio i find that the lenders that i'm thinking of when you kind of go above 80% they start to bring in caps on debt to income ratio and, yep. and net servicing ratios and they want to see a higher surplus at that amount so it's probably not ideal for your first home buyer that's going up to their like you know $1 surplus type pre-approval situation because yeah. you you won't probably get that over yeah. an 80% lend so it's really good to again bring home the fact that if we've got a 20% deposit good income pretty straightforward situation our, our turnarounds are going to be pretty simply usual pretty simple mm. usually however if we're going to play that strategic game of 10% deposit or 5% um, and we want to bring LMI into the mix and because we want to save some funds for a future investment we've just got to allow that extra week two weeks um, turnaround at both ends of the, the, the process, right? Yeah, the pre-approval but also the settlement and, and just make sure we're not cutting our nose off saying, yeah, I can settle in 30 days um, just to secure a property. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like 30-day settlements are so uncommon now as well. Just generally bank servicing times and what people have become accustomed to. Mm. It's like 45 days is like, ooh, but usually like 60 plus. Well, in Victoria anyway, that seems to be what the trend is. Yeah. So basically if you're not a – Vanilla deal, as they say. Yes. <laughs> uh, the other thing at the moment that's impacting like more of the settlement timeframes, <laughs> lenders that don't yet do digital documentation. And in Victoria, there are far more lenders that are doing digital docs now, but you've still got paper mortgages in Queensland, for example. You've got to allow for timeframes for Australia Post. So that sort of stuff even can impact your settlement if you've got a longer period of time for your assessment yeah. to get formal approval and then all of a sudden you've got to, you know, escalate and get these docs out so that they can be signed and returned to the bank with enough time for them to review them as well. That can also impact your settlement. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for the listeners in Queensland, but Queensland's annoying me at the moment. After, uh, <laughs> finance and contracts and real estate agents and everything else. But they, they are, you're right, they do things very differently up there. So just be aware if you're buying up that way. And Hobart, let's not even get started on them. I think they, they still do paper exchange. They don't use an online system for the settlements. You both have to go to the bank and do the little swapsy on the day. So, wow. yeah. Jeez, yep. that was Shout out to Hobart. Not a lot of my clients are investing <laughs> in Hobart, clearly. They're all in Queensland. <laughs> yeah, cool. Oh, boy. Right, let's uh, take a break and then we'll get into some more questions. We will indeed. We'll be right back. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. So we are back with Evelyn from Everland. I just, I don't know if you realise, but I call you Everland instead of Evelyn all the time. So many people do. Yeah. yeah. It's not uncommon for me to walk into a room and go, Evelyn. <laughs> She's here. Now, I've got a few more questions for you. One thing I did want to touch on, because I think uh, both you and I deal in a lot of first home buyer space um, and a lot of listeners of the show are first home buyers. Shout out to you guys if you're looking for your first home. One of the things that often pops up in the lending space and getting ready for a loan is scraping all your pennies together for the deposit and also stamps if you need to pay stamp duty, conveyancing fees, building and pest, right? So, the the cost to acquire the property. One thing I think I see and I'm so sure that you see it too is because they're scraping all their pennies together, by the time they bought the property, there's not much left over. And I feel like that's a bit of concern, right? Yeah, I would agree with you. One thing that we definitely do whenever I sit down with, I mean, this goes for any client, but particularly for first home buyers, because they've never seen sort of that funding position before in terms of what do you actually need outside of the property purchase price itself to complete the purchase. Mm. Uh, One thing that we do is we sit down and go through a funding calculator and we add in buffers for everything. So we're adding in, uh, obviously the whatever purchase price we're working off, we might be pre-approval stage at this uh, yeah. point in time. But we'll look at obviously the purchase price there, the stamp duty that's relevant to that, depending on the state, um, your transfer of land fees, your mortgage registration fees. And then that's usually about where it stops property cost-wise. But mm. then on top of that, we're adding a buffer for conveyancing and adjustments to the because your conveyancing fees are not just going to be conveyancing. You're going to have adjustments and disbursements to the property. So we'll go through and explain to them what does that actually entail and how much should you be allowing for that? Mm-hmm. Any potential lender upfront fees because that comes out of the loan at settlement. Yeah. Um, and then as you said, if there's any other costs like building and pest, buyer's advocates, we add in all of those costs to this funding worksheet. So we pretty much add up, this is everything you need to complete the purchase. Yes. And then we look at, this is everything you have, pretty much subtract that, that's the loan amount that you need. Yep. So we, we know that our clients are not going to be short at settlement. Um, but in saying that, one other thing that I look at is when a client tells me they've got say 50,000 to put towards the purchase, I then ask, well, how much have you got in savings in total? 
or vice versa, the other way around. Mm. And if they tell me that, well, no, that's that's my savings, 50000 and I'm putting that towards the purchase, then I sort of say, oh, well, have you, you know, considered a buffer because da-da-da-da. Um, I do think that you need to retain a buffer, absolutely. Um, we obviously can't give, you know, financial advice around that, but my personal opinion is, well, what would happen if, you know, you needed to, um, I've just always had that thing in my mind of like, what if your car broke down or what if something urgent happens to the property? Yes, insurance does its job, but you need to have a buffer for just general life expenses as well. Um, and also a bit of an emergency buffer, which Mm. I'm sure you guys would talk about a lot as well. But, um, I would generally say that most of our buyers will look at retaining an absolute minimum of 5,000 if it's a single purchaser. Um, and if not at least 10 to 20, for a couple. And I think that's excluding new furniture, mm-hmm. you know, works to the property when you move in, yep. removalists, all those things that come, even um, connection costs if it's a brand new property with MBN, like there's a couple hundred bucks in these things that do add up. And it does concern me personally sometimes when people are like they've all their savings is all their savings and there is no buffer. So just to be mindful, if you are a first-home buyer out there, um, and as Evelyn mentioned, it's not financial advice, it's the consideration that we're putting across that having a buffer is advisable, highly advisable. You don't want to be in a stressed position. Like mm. owning a house is great, but owning a house and being stressed about money, not so great. So Absolutely. just to factor that in. Yeah, and I think the other part of that too is – with first-home buyers, of course, you know, you're saving all of your money for a deposit. So it can seem like by keeping some of that aside or allowing yourself a buffer for your just general life expenses and that sort of thing, that all of a sudden your deposit's not going as far or then you're going to be in lender's mortgage insurance. However, that's a lot of the time why we have conversations around guarantor options or other ways to sort of make that deposit go a bit further. Um, and that's where we see that a lot of times with the guarantor options, clients are actually retaining a a larger portion of their own savings because they may want to do some serious renos to the property. So Mm. it does allow you to do that definitely as long as you've got the borrowing capacity. And it's a great segue to what I was about to ask you because I think a lot of our listenership are curious about uh, guarantor loans, how they work, what's required. And I also think a lot of mums and dads don't quite understand what a guarantor loan is because they probably didn't have one themselves getting in. So um, more generally, do you think it's a good idea that mum and dad attend the meeting with a broker? Do they need to be there when we're talking about guarantor loans or how much do they need to be involved? Mm. We have to interview the guarantor Uh, individually anyway, separate to the customers. So we do have to have a meeting that basically sits down with them and asks them, do they understand the responsibilities of being guarantor? What would happen if you needed to repay back the guarantor loan split? Would you be in, you know, um, financial stress essentially to be able to do that? Um, So we definitely do go into that sort of thing with the guarantors. But I do find that um, they probably don't understand it in as much detail. They've sort of just heard of it and and understand that, um, you know, there will be a mortgage essentially tied to their property. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic structure of how the guarantor loan works is the premise behind it is it avoids you having to pay lenders mortgage insurance because you don't need to put as much deposit towards the purchase from a cash perspective. Mm -hmm. So the way that it happens is, let's say you're um, buying a property and you only have a 10% deposit, then you would normally need to borrow 90% and pay lenders mortgage insurance on top of that. With the guarantor loan, you still only pay the 90%, Mm -hmm. but 80% of it is secured by your property alone 
The additional 10% required to complete the purchase is secured by your property and the guarantor's property. So think of it like two loan splits. One's always at 80% and the other split is the guarantor split. That's always the additional money required to complete the purchase. With most lenders, you can't go above 100% um, of the purchase price. I say most, but it's probably not quite accurate. There are lenders that will actually allow you to borrow 100% of the purchase price plus costs. So you might be borrowing 105% of the purchase price with essentially 25% of that secured by your property and the guarantor's property. Now that obviously increases the liability to the guarantor because it's a larger loan split that is secured by their house as well. Yes. Um, But the the idea behind that is because if you look at any one property individually, there is no more than 80% um, of, of the loan uh, I say 80% of the value of that property um, with a mortgage against it. That's yes. why there's no LMI. That's why that's waived from the lender's eyes. So you still have to be able to service the entire loan amount. So if you are borrowing 105%, you have to be able to make those repayments. Back, yep. <laughs> so as long as you've got strong servicing, it's fantastic for people that, you know, potentially don't have as much saved or are wanting to retain those savings for renos. Definitely. So just to clarify, mum and dad aren't helping actually pay the loan, like the monthly repayments of the mortgage, they're not paying that. They're just having equity in their home secured against um, the purchase that you're that you're making. Right. And as you said, no to no property exceeds eighty percent, and that's Correct. why we avoid LMI. Yeah. Now, a question for you because I think um, a lot of people, as you mentioned, the deposit can be hard to save, particularly in this market, and the market's growing faster than people can save. Mm. And a guarantor may be a great way to get into this market. The next question would be, well, how do we, we don't want guarantor forever. How do we, you know, leverage it for a certain period of time? And then mum and dad, goodbye, thanks for your help, but we don't need you anymore. What's at a high level, the process to take mum and dad off Mm. um, as a guarantor? Yeah, absolutely. And I think most guarantors that I speak with, uh, Mm. their question is, how do we like, how can we end this? Yeah, let us out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the idea is once your loan is at 80% against your property only, mm-hmm. the guarantor can be removed. So yep. that is a combination of you're either paying off the loan um, potentially faster by making additional repayments because the goal is to remove the guarantor yep. uh, or the property is going up in value or a combination of the both. Mm-hmm. But once we can get the property revalued, so it might take you a year depending on the property market, it might take you a couple of years depending on how much really you've secured against the guarantor's property, mm. either once you've paid down that split yourself um, or we get a valuation done on the property in let's say a year's time and it's gone up in value, then we can refinance or we can just remove the guarantor from the title completely. Yeah, perfect. So there is an exit strategy for mum and dad, mum or dad to get off that uh, guarantor loan just mm. to be across it and um, involve them in the process and maybe even direct them to this part of the episode so that they can hear for themselves what yeah. what's involved. I think it's a lack of understanding sometimes that yeah. can hinder it. Some of the risks, I guess, that are important to note with the guarantor loan or from the guarantor's perspective, what is sort of the worst case scenario? Mm. The general idea is uh, if the borrower cannot make the repayments, the guarantor would be required to assist. Right. If as a worst case scenario, the client, you know, defaulted on the mortgage and the property was required to be sold, Mm. then the guarantor split either needs to be repaid back or the property that is sold is essentially enough to cover both the client's mortgage and the guarantor split anyway. So um, that's sort of the worst case of what you're potentially considering. And if that's not enough money, then your guarantors would actually have to be able to 
either put some cash forward or something to cover that guarantor split or any excess that needs to be paid back. Yeah. So worst case scenario, hopefully a a very unlikely scenario, but Mm. good to be aware of all possibilities that could happen. Yeah. Um, Bit of change of pace. So in terms of uh, looking at investments, so a lot of listeners are rent investors. They have a couple of investment properties. They're looking to grow their portfolio and they might hit some hurdles when it comes to lending because they're going back for more money each time. Are there any sort of high level strategies that someone should look at? Say that they're moving on from property number three to four. Mm -hmm. Like, is there something that you would be um, looking at in particular to help them attain finance or make sure they're not too heavily leveraged? Yeah, sure. Good question. Um, first of all, big fan of rent investors. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, second of all, with the strategy around it, I think this is where one of my favourite conversations with all clients is what's the long-term goal? Because mm. we cannot make a decision on this either purchase or loan structure unless you know what that longer-term strategy is. And it's maybe not so relevant for first-home buyers or, or people that just have a desire to own their own home and just pay it off and, and be happy with that. Yeah. But if you actually want to use property as a source of wealth creation – Um, and you do have a desire to accumulate three or four properties in a space of a particular period of time, then there does need to be strategy held around that. Otherwise, you won't be able to achieve that and you will run into roadblocks. Mm. So the most common roadblocks that I typically tend to see, and I guess strategies to avoid that, the first roadblock for the first property is always deposit. Right. Um, Once you've got into property... Mm -hmm. The next purchase tends to be a lot easier in terms of actually accumulating that deposit because if you've made the right asset selection, usually that first property from what we see tends to be something that is going to go up in value Mm -hmm. so that people can leverage the equity or the growth in that property for their next deposit on the next purchase. So therefore they've now acquired two properties and then it's probably at three and four that it starts to get a little bit trickier again, but that's more so around serviceability because the reason behind that is you don't want to overextend yourself on two properties and essentially go to your maximum borrowing capacity already on those first two properties um, so that you all of a sudden can't borrow enough for the Mm. third or the fourth. So I think the first point to look at would be how many properties are we essentially trying to buy? Um, How much money are we going to need to borrow over that course of time to be able to afford those properties? And also what is the potential rental return of those properties and capital growth value of the properties? So for example, if the first property you're looking at, you're looking at something that's going up in value, Mm -hmm. um, you're obviously not going to be going to your maximum borrowing capacity on that because you're not, you you don't want to cap yourself out on the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But if you then acquiring maybe two or three, you do want to have a mix of some high um, yielding properties as well Mm. because the rental income is going to be part of that serviceability assessment. Yes. And that's one thing to to make note of is if we're looking at, say, um, you're purchasing a property with a 5% rental yield and we've noted that in our pre-approval and our serviceability and we say, yes, you can go up to a purchase price of this amount, you need to make sure that that property that you're acquiring, acquiring also has that, that same rental yield that we've actually calculated for um, or allowed for because if it's less than that, that might impact your servicing on that loan. Yes. So um, that's probably what I'd just be aware of. Mm. I think it's good to have a combination of capital growth generating properties as well as high rental yields yep. for the purposes of getting the deposit for the next purchase being the capital growth one yes. and also strengthening your servicing on the higher rental yield. Yeah. So if you feel like you're starting to max out some of your serviceability, then it might be strategic to have one that is maybe not bought for, for growth. It's 
it's bought for the yield, got good return and it's basically a little cash flow that helps. Yeah, correct. You know, it's another income stream for you outside of your salary, yeah. um, outside of any other earnings that you might have. So yeah, that's yeah right. makes sense in, in, in theory. Yeah. I think um, selection of assets is super important and um, looking at, you know, where to buy and being across the market. We've mm. discussed in previous episodes about that, um, <clears throat> but certainly crucial in getting your strategy right, yeah. for sure. The um, investors that we work with, and they are, most of them are actually rent investors, I would say, that mm. have three or four properties that they're looking at acquiring. And they may already have two and we may be either refinancing their existing loans to free up some equity for the next purchase um, or they may already have that, that cash ready to go. But when we're looking at potentially them acquiring two in the next year, mm. we are running our servicing off them buying those two. Yes. So we're not looking at just the pre-approval for the next purchase. We're looking at the pre-approval, uh, I guess, affordability for the next two yes. so that we know that this first one that they buy is not going to impact the second one yep. negatively. Well, we've covered off quite a few topics today. We've gone here, there and everywhere. Um, we're always keen for questions from the community and um, Evelyn is readily available to answer questions. Well, I've just uh, volunteered herself to answer more questions in the future. But um, please, if you're listening to this episode and you have more specific um, questions for a broker or about lending or even about strategy, feel free to put them in the My Millennial Money Facebook group and um, just tag away or hashtag property, hashtag finance. We will answer them. Um, but Evelyn from Everland, thank you so much for coming in today and chatting. It's been, um, I've learned actually a couple of things and I always do, you know, chatting because you're the finance expert and I think it's, you know, people in property sometimes don't quite understand all the little ins and outs of what's going on behind the lending. So thanks for sharing today. My pleasure. And likewise, I always learn something from you. When we, this is why we have great conversations because yeah. <laughs> we end up discovering something fantastic. Something that we don't know. Yeah. So have a great week ahead, everyone. We'll be back next week. Any questions you have, put them in the Facebook group. But until then, we'll speak soon. Bye. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created The Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.